0: I need to let you know this episode involves the death of a child. There will be discussion about the events surrounding his murder and the tragic experiences his family endured after his death. Listener discretion is advised. When you're a parent, you have routines. Sometimes you endeavor to have routines and life gets in the way, but there are certain rituals you practice with your kids. Maybe it's the same bedtime story or song, night after night, or the same movie every Friday the same lunch on Tuesday, or blueberry pancakes every Sunday morning. Some people might call these habits, but you know it's more than just a habit. It's a syncopated rhythm you practice with your family, even on days when the world has gone to shit. There are rituals, and these small gestures of repetition tie the bonds of family. My daughter and I have a ritual when we leave the house together, something that started when she was very little. I don't remember why or how. It's just something we've always done. When we leave the house, I ask, ready, Freddy? And she responds, ready, George. The ready, Freddy, I get. It's an old rhyme that may have stuck in my head from something in my own childhood. But where George came from, I have no idea. It's just what we do and have always done and will likely continue to do long into our future. Kathy Pollock had a routine with her middle child, Eddie. Anytime she dropped him off somewhere, she said, I love you, please be careful. To which Eddie always replied, I love you too, and I always am. They shared that exchange as Kathy dropped Eddie and her younger son, Billy, off at their respective destinations on Friday, November 11th, almost 25 years ago in 1994. The Pollocks lived in Fox Chase, a neighborhood in northeast Philadelphia. Generations before... Fox Chase was an area where Philadelphia elite built mansions on the outskirts of the city. Some of those mansions still stand today, like Knowlton Mansion, built by Frank Furness, the same Frank Furness we talked about in Exit Zero, who built the Emlyn Physic Estate in Cape May. Fox Chase sits right on the edge of the Montgomery County suburbs. It's not far from the town of Abington, which we discussed in the episodes about Grace Packer, and we're going to visit those neighborhoods again in this story. If you're a true crime follower, the town of Fox Chase may be familiar to you, because it's home to one of the oldest unsolved murders in the country. Over 60 years ago, the body of a little boy, he may have been four or five years old, was found in a JC. Penny bassinet box near Pennypack Park in Fox Chase. This little boy became known as the Boy in the Box. Later, he was given the name America's Unknown Child. Penny Pack Park was one of the reasons why Eddie's parents, Kathy and John Pollock, wanted to stay in Fox Chase. They wanted to raise their kids in the neighborhood where they grew up. Fox Chase was for families, on the edge of the city, but not touched by as much crime as other neighborhoods. They had good schools, good business communities. It has a long history attached to Philadelphia from one of the oldest farms in the area still operating today, and Penny Pack Park. It's a beautiful, pristine stretch of forest and trails, perfect for biking and hiking, even boating and swimming along Pennypack Creek, family picnics and parties. It was a great place to settle down. When Kathy Pollock dropped her son Eddie off at the wreck, a park not far from their home, not far from the McDonald's where lots of Fox Chase kids hung out on a Friday or Saturday night, she had no reason not to expect both her boys' home by curfew at 11:30 that night. But on that particular Friday night, the Pollock family spent their evening in Einstein Hospital, where 16-year-old Eddie was in critical condition after suffering a brutal attack at the hands of some kids from Abington School District. Eddie survived that first night, but the next day the doctors told Eddie's father John he'd been so severely beaten he was being kept alive by machines, and they feared he may be in pain. Eddie's family made the impossible decision to let him go. He was just 16 years old, days before he'd been playing pool with his father in their basement, a match that continued for weeks, when the best out of three became the best out of five, then the best out of seven, and then, well, you get the idea. The story of Eddie Pollock's life and tragic death, his murder, because let's be clear, he was savagely murdered by a group of teenage boys has been a frequent request among local listeners. It's an unbelievably sad story, not only because of the death of a child, but the widespread failure in our city's 911 system, which led to 40 minutes of unaddressed 911 calls leading up to Eddie's assault. We can't ever know if circumstances that night could have been different for Eddie had someone taken those calls seriously. But thanks to the work of Eddie's family, who somehow managed to find an unexpected purpose, our 911 system in Philadelphia is and has been better for a long time. That's one of the positive outcomes in these difficult, tragic stories. They bring us together, because all of us can relate to hanging out on a Friday night with your buddies when you're 16, maybe wanting to stretch that curfew just a little bit, maybe sneaking a few beers because someone showed up with a keg, even though you are well below legal drinking age, or stuffing your face with greasy pizza and a large Coke, not a thought in your head about cholesterol or carbs or sugar because you're 16 and at 16 you think you can live forever without even thinking about it. Your own mortality is such a foreign concept at that age. But for Eddie Pollack, it was right around the corner in the form of a gang of kids from Abington, Pennsylvania. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly. Philly. This story is heartbreaking. It's big and complex, with so many avenues to explore. I want to start by talking about Eddie. I think the best story to kick us off is the day Eddie Pollock was born, on January 21st, 1978. Eddie's mom, Kathy, tells an incredible story about that day. She woke up around 3 a.m. Her water broke in her sleep. The day before this happened, the Philadelphia area had a massive snowstorm. A foot and a half of snow fell all over the Delaware Valley. Kathy's husband, John, shoveled all day long, but it probably wouldn't have made a difference because they had a 74 Mustang. There's no way that car was going anywhere in two inches of snow, let alone a foot and a half. John called the local ambulance because that's what we did in the 70s. We had direct numbers for our local police, fire, and ambulance. According to Kathy's story, the dispatcher said they had nothing to worry about. The overnight driver lived just a few blocks from Kathy and John Pollock, and the ambulance was parked outside his house. But just like Kathy and John's car, a snowplow buried the ambulance, so a bunch of neighbors had to work together at 3 a.m. to dig it out. Because of the snow, there was no way to get their two-year-old little girl, Christy, to their parents' house. And the ambulance couldn't get up their street, so John stayed home with Christy. And Kathy had to walk through a foot and a half of snow to get to the ambulance while she's having contractions. And she can tell Eddie just doesn't want to wait. That baby was coming. Somehow, she managed to make it to the hospital because she and the EMTs thought she was going to deliver in the ambulance. Eddie Pollock was born less than two hours after Kathy woke up that morning, back in 1978. January 21st, well, that was also John Pollock's birthday. His birthday present for his 24th birthday was a baby boy. When Eddie was 10 years old, he wrote an essay at St. Cecilia's Catholic School. That's where he went for elementary school. And he shared a story from when he was about three years old. Eddie, his baby brother Billy, his sister Christy, and his mom went to Sears. They were shopping for clothes. And as I read his essay, I instantly saw my mom, my grandmom, me and my little brother in a Sears store about the same age as Eddie and his older sister shopping for our clothes. It must have been some sort of rite of passage going to Sears with your mom and feeling like it was a huge adventure. Kathy Pollock told the kids she'd get them soft pretzels when they were done. Oh, my God, getting a treat after a shopping trip. That was such a tradition. So here's Eddie waiting for his pretzel. But next to the pretzel counter, he saw a gumball machine. Those machines were like magic. When you were a little kid, it didn't matter how nasty the gum or candy was inside. It didn't matter how hard it was to chew. Those gumball machines were like something out of a carnival. And Eddie was mesmerized. So he stuck his hand up through the hole where the gum comes out. And it got stuck. No one can get his hand out. Staff came over to help other shoppers. Nothing worked, so the store called the fire department. Somehow, Kathy got this idea in her head that maybe if they turned the machine upside down, well, that's what they did. They turned it upside down, squirted some lotion down into the hole on Eddie Pollock's hand, and his arm popped out just as the fire department arrived, and according to Kathy, they were carrying an axe. Eddie Pollock played soccer for a community league, and when he was young, his coach used to complain, it didn't matter how good Eddie Pollock was at sports, and he was pretty good. He would get distracted talking to the opposing players on the field. Maybe he didn't know these kids as well as the kids on his own team, and he wanted to get to know them. There are so many stories like these in the book In Eddie's Name, One Family's Triumph Over Tragedy. By Bryn Friedman, who used to be a reporter for Fox News in Philadelphia back in the 90s, and William Nodelsetter. And I'll share some more of these stories as we talk today. What I learned from this book is Eddie Pollock was a pretty awesome kid. All the Pollock kids were. So many times you hear, oh, they were a perfect family. And I'm not gonna say that because no one is perfect, but the Pollocks were a damn good family. Kathy and John seemed really engaged with their kids. Eddie looked out for his little brother. Christy helped Eddie get a job where she worked at Boston Market, even though, as an older teenage sister, at first she couldn't stand the idea of working with her little brother, but very quickly came to love working with him. Eddie was fun loving and charming. He was chatty and curious. His family, his priest, his teachers, his friends, everyone talked about how Eddie Pollock touched people's souls. He may not have been the smartest kid in class, and he worked hard in school. He did better in high school than he did in the younger grades, but he confidently told his mom one day that he just didn't think college was for him, at least not yet while he was a senior in high school. According to his mom, Kathy, he didn't say it like, poor me, or I'm not good enough. It seemed like it was more about Eddie really considering what he wanted to do, and what might be the best fit for him. He planned to join the Coast Guard after graduation. He thought it would be a great experience for him, help him mature, and then with the GI Bill the military would pay for college once he was ready, once he was a little more settled and a little more mature. Everything I learned about Eddie pollock so much more than I ever knew when I first heard his name back in the news in 1994, demonstrated he had an amazing spirit. He was the kind of kid you'd love your daughter to date, He was the kid you wanted in your corner as your friend, just an all-around good dude with a constant smile on his face. Earlier this week, I shared a photo of Eddie Pollock in the Twisted Philly discussion group. It was from what his parents called his GQ photo shoot. In this photo, Eddie is wearing a white sweater with a collar, four tortoiseshell buttons buttoned all the way up to his neck, a pair of jeans, and he's got a pose like... I'm cool, but I'm not too cool that I won't take a great portrait for my mom. That outfit, Eddie's favorite outfit, is the same one his father John picked out in November 1994, in which he buried his son. No suit and tie, just Eddie's favorite sweater and jeans, his favorite white sneakers, his favorite baseball cap. Eddie Pollock was murdered on November 11, 1994, when he was 16 years old, just a little over two months shy of his 17th birthday. He was brutally attacked by a gang of kids from Abington, Pennsylvania, for absolutely no reason. And less than 24 hours after the attack, Eddie passed away in the hospital with his family and his friends by his side. Let's talk about geography for a few minutes. Fox Chase is a Philadelphia neighborhood that borders on Montgomery County. It's north and a little west of northeast Philadelphia. If you're looking at a map, it's one of the last Philly boroughs you'll pass through before you leave Philadelphia County. Some people may have their own definition of the city borders, but typically anything outside of Philadelphia County is referred to as the suburbs, even though very suburban areas are within the outer edges of Philadelphia County, areas like Fox Chase. Abington is just over the county line. It's less than five miles from the Fox Chase neighborhood. So while you'd think these communities would be very similar, they aren't. More kids in Philly and Fox Chase went to private or religious schools, while more kids went to public schools out in the burbs. The kids from Fox Chase and other Philly neighborhoods may have been perceived as tough because they're from Philly, but they weren't. They were regular teenagers, regular kids, going to McDonald's and Pizza Hut on a Friday night, looking out for their friends at the park that was barely minutes from these fast food joints. They hung out just like me and my friends did as teenagers in the 80s. In some cases, they may have had stricter parents. There was this sort of unofficial parent community, like a mom's club. Let's say you're out on a Friday night picking up pizza, and you see some of the neighborhood kids out. Well, you'd get in their business. Do your parents know you're out? Are you being good? Make sure you're home by your curfew, because you know I'm going to ask your mom when I see her in church on Sunday. It was never accusatory or judgmental. It was just people looking out for one another. The kids from Abington and nearby suburbs just over the city line, well, it seemed like they had a lot more freedom. And I think a big reason for that was because so many of them had cars and cell phones or pagers. They had a means of transportation and communication that a lot of kids in the city didn't have. And really, the kids in the city may not have needed it. Everything is so much more compressed. Everything is so close to everything else. And outside the city, It's more spread out. Abington was and is a fairly affluent community. That doesn't mean everyone from that area was rich or even made more money than the Pollock family. They just lived a little differently. Some kids from Abington High School used to drive into Fox Chase to go to the same McDonald's or Pizza Hut that the Fox Chase and Cardinal Doherty High School kids visited. There were certainly fast food joints and places to hang out in Abington and Jenkintown on the other side of Fox Chase. But the thing about the hangouts in Fox Chase, they were all within blocks of one another, or some even on the same block. So it made it a lot easier if the kids from the suburbs went into Fox Chase. I also think there's an appeal of going into the city. Now, these kids were literally just over the Philly line. So it's not like they drove very far or really experienced Center City or other Philadelphia neighborhoods because Fox Chase is a much more suburban community. But I get it. We used to go down to 69th Street, which technically isn't even Philadelphia, but it butts right up against the edge of the city. And the stores there were so cool in the 80s, stores that we didn't have in the Burbs. But we also used to go down to South Street a lot. So maybe we were a little cooler than these Abington kids. Yeah, probably not. On Friday, November 4th, 1994, a young woman from Abington High School named Diane and a few of her girlfriends drove from Abington to Fox Chase to go to McDonald's. Diane and her friends got into an argument with some Fox Chase kids in the parking lot. Some people say the kids from Fox Chase spit on Diane's car. We know for sure that someone tossed their soda at her car, and in a confluence of alignment, That soda flew through her open car window and landed on her lap. She and her friends were doused in soda. Somehow, over the course of the next seven days, between November 4th and November 11th, the story that ran through the rumor mill in Abington High School was that Diane was sexually assaulted by a bunch of guys from Fox Chase. When she was interviewed by the Philadelphia police, Diane swore up and down that she never said that although there were numerous kids from Abington High School who were also interviewed by the police who said it was Diane herself that actually started that rumor. When she was questioned, all she told the police was that the Fox Chase kids spit on her car and tossed a soda at her. This is what started everything. A kid threw a soda at another kid's car. It flew into the car, and a week later, a caravan of kids from Abington Headed into Fox Chase for revenge. I realize that sounds dramatic. I am not adding a flare of drama here. It was a caravan of cars. In fact, at one point, the kids who were believed to be the leaders or organizers of this event wanted to rent a U-Haul so they could pack dozens of kids into a truck to have even more people from Abington head into Fox Chase. I'm going to take you through the events of that night. Kathy Pollock dropped her youngest son, Billy, off at the wreck, and she dropped Eddie off at a nearby friend's house around 6 p.m. that Friday night, November 11th. The wreck, that's a park. It was pretty empty when Billy got there, so he cut over to McDonald's, which is just barely a half a block from the park. Everything I'm going to talk about happened within the radius of maybe three blocks. When Billy Pollock got to McDonald's, He and his friends saw that same red Plymouth Duster from the week before, the one with the girls who had a soda tossed into their car. This time, there were guys in the car with Diane, and they drove like idiots trying to hit Fox Chase kids in the parking lot. According to Eddie's brother, Billy Pollock, when he tried to head back to the wreck, a second car pulled into the McDonald's parking lot and blocked him. Somebody yelled out, Tell the wreck we'll be back at 10 o'clock to kick their asses. Eddie was down at the wreck. He and a couple of friends managed to get their hands on a half keg, which, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a metal drum filled with beer. And before anyone thinks, oh, these must have been bad kids, let me tell you something. I was a pretty good kid in school. I was in tough classes. I was in theater. And the number of times I was at a party where someone managed to get their hands on a half keg or a beer ball, it was like a rite of passage showing up at a party or a park, someone's tapping a keg, and selling beer for $2 a cup. More often than not, that money covered the deposit fees on the keg and the tap. The fact that Eddie and his friends had a half keg of beer at their local park doesn't make them bad kids. Throughout the night, almost all the Fox Chase kids hanging out at the rec or McDonald's, the Pizza Hut next door, or the steak shop across the street had run-ins with carloads of kids from Abington. Some kids said there were four cars full of Abington teenagers threatening some sort of attack. Others said there were five or six. I guess the numbers don't matter because it was a lot. And that's not numeric or scientific, but by the end of the night, at least 24 kids from Abington had a hand either directly or as a bystander in what happened to Eddie Pollack. In an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia police indicated there was a fight between local kids and the kids from Abington at the Fox Chase Recreational Center at about 10.30 on Friday night, November 11, 1994. That's not what happened. According to Eddie Pollock's younger brother, Billy, and a number of their friends who were on site when everything went down, at some point between 9.30 and 10 p.m., carloads of kids from Abington pulled into the area around the wreck, the park where a number of the Fox Chase kids were spending their Friday night. The kids from Fox Chase ran in different directions. Some ran through a hole in the fence behind McDonald's, some fled across the street or behind local businesses because the kids from Abington, who jumped out of their cars, ran after them carrying baseball bats. John Atkinson, a friend of Eddie Pollock's, was one of the first kids attacked. He ran through the parking lot of a nearby auto body shop on Rockwell Avenue. It was right next to the rec park and McDonald's and about a block from St. Cecilia's church where everyone attended Catholic mass. John was a big kid and an athlete, and he ran for his life. His friends saw him running with his hands over his head to protect himself. But the kids chasing him knocked him to the ground. They stood over him and hit him with a baseball bat. John Atkinson was so severely injured, the kids who helped him home had to literally hoist him over fences. They traipsed through backyards to stay off the streets because they were afraid of getting attacked again. And according to firsthand accounts from the Fox Chase kids who took care of John, one or two kids would jump a fence while a few other friends stayed on the other side. And they would lift John up and over to the friends on the opposite side of the fence who would carry him down They did this repeatedly to get home. He couldn't walk. He couldn't see or talk properly. Eddie Pollack and his brother Billy headed for home, as did most of the Fox Chase kids that were out that night between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. You couldn't turn in any direction without seeing carloads of kids with bats. Kids jumping out of their cars, swinging the bats, chasing down kids from Fox Chase. It was like a fucking war zone. Eddie. Billy and a few other friends were barely three blocks from the Pollock house when five cars of kids raced up the street towards them and all but trapped them outside St. Cecilia's church. Billy and another friend ran down the street to a house where a friend's grandmother lived. Another friend ran in a different direction, but Eddie got stuck because by now the Abington kids were out of their cars swinging bats. By the time the first police officer arrived, Eddie Pollock was unconscious. One of his friends sat on the ground holding his head in her lap. She was covered in blood. The ground was covered in blood. Eddie Pollock was beaten to death by seven young men from Abington, Pennsylvania, because someone threw a soda into a girl's car, and eventually that incident got blown up into sexual assault. Eddie didn't know these boys. They didn't know him. His attackers admitted he screamed at them, I didn't do anything, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything. Eddie didn't die the night of the attack. His parents got a call around 11 p.m. that night from one of the priests at St. Cecilia's Church. He told John there was an accident and they needed to come to St. Cecilia's right away. Knowing Eddie's personality, his parents thought he did something stupid. Maybe he broke a window at church. But when they pulled up at St. Cecilia's and saw police and ambulances, they knew it was something else entirely. Eddie Pollack was hit in the head eight or ten times with a baseball bat. It was a targeted impact over and over in the same spot. He was hit while he was on the ground. Then at one point, one of his attackers held him up by the back of his shirt and his shoulders so two other boys could take shots at him. He was kicked repeatedly while he was on the ground. He had severe defensive wounds to his hands, trying to protect his head from the blows. Eddie was beaten so severely, his brain rotated on its stem. That likely happened from the hits while he was being held up by his shoulders. His head was knocked from side to side. He suffered seven skull fractures. Most of the bones on the left side of his face were crushed. ER doctors explained to his family the brain damage was so severe, it couldn't keep his heart beating. Eddie lived for about 12 hours after the attack because he was on life support. And I know normally I don't share this much detail about trauma that a victim endures. But in this case, what these kids did to Eddie is so reprehensible. People need to know what that young man suffered through. I want to talk about how fast all of this happened. Everything happened within a span of a few hours. The Abington kids showing up, chasing down Fox Chase kids at McDonald's and the Rec and Pizza Hut and the church, beating anyone they could get their hands on along the way, beating John Atkinson, then beating Eddie Pollock. There were hundreds of people at Einstein Hospital the night Eddie was beaten. Hundreds of children and parents, people around the community, they were desperate for news that Eddie would be all right It was so crowded, at one point the ER doctors had to practically beg Mr. Pollock to go out and talk to the crowd, let them know they didn't have much information to share, and ask them to disperse into waiting rooms so the doctors could do their jobs. The next morning on November 12th, at around 10.30, 12 hours after the attack, the Pollock family said goodbye to Eddie, and doctors turned off the machines that were keeping him alive. He was gone within minutes. That fast. This bright, funny, charming kid who touched so many people was gone. The police in the 7th District had a mountain of an investigation to get through. And they started that night. So many kids from Fox Chase, along with their parents, went to the 7th District to give reports about what they saw, whom they saw, what happened, when it happened. There was so much for police and detectives to sort through. But early on, they got an idea of what went down on the night of November 11th. Detective Tom Parks was the lead investigator, and he had an army of support from numerous squads in his district and special investigators, which he needed. Because if you think about the number of people involved in this, to greater or lesser degrees, where do you even start? The victims didn't know their assailants and vice versa. On Tuesday, November 15th, a young man named Tom Crook. From Abington showed up at the police station in Fox Chase with his mother. She said her son told her a story about what happened Friday night and they wanted to tell the police. I think Tom Crook's statements are what really broke open the investigation and pointed officers in the direction they needed to identify Eddie Pollock's assailants. What Tom Crook didn't tell police was that he didn't just witness what happened, he participated. Police found his fingerprints on one of the bats left at the scene and Tom had to admit what he'd done. He also gave up the names of two other Abington teenagers who were not only active participants, but may have been the most actively engaged in everything that happened that Friday night in Fox Chase, Nick Pinero and Boo Cadavong. Thomas Crook was 18 years old. He went to Abington High School, then moved and attended a school in another district, but he was removed for cutting almost a month of school and sent to a place called Lakeside. We have a school like Lakeside in Upper Marion called Vantage. I keep telling my daughter I want to dig into that place because when I hear the reasons why some kids from Upper Marion are sent to Vantage, I always think of this one episode of SVU. It's the one where Swoozy Kurtz plays a judge who gets kickbacks for sending kids to juvie. Vantage isn't a juvenile detention center, neither is Lakeside. It's what we call a transitional school for kids who get into trouble. Maybe they break the law. Maybe they cut too much school. Some kids are able to transition back from these schools to the regular district. But experiences there aren't great. Nick Pinero and Tom Crook were best friends, although Nick was a little younger, just 16 years old. Nick went to Abington High School, got kicked out, and was sent to Lakeside. Then he dropped out altogether before he finished the 10th grade. Boo Katavong was 17 years old. He also attended Abington High School. He got kicked out. He got sent to Lakeside. He spent both his sophomore and junior years at Lakeside, then was readmitted to Abington High School for his senior year, and at the time of the attack, he was on suspension for skipping too much school. Boo also had a record. He was arrested for criminal trespass, resisted arrest, and then violated his probation. These were the first three young men arrested for the murder of Eddie Pollack. Very shortly, four others joined the list. Seventeen year old Anthony Renzi was in the back seat of the same car as Tom Crook. Anthony was also known to the local police in Warminster, pa, where he lived that's not far from Abington, but not for anything serious. He had citations for underage drinking, disturbing the peace, and that was because his neighbors complained every time he played his music too loudly. Witnesses told police Anthony Renzi took the first swing at Eddie; he swang the bat like a golf club. Eddie's parents and the jury were subjected to a reenactment during the murder trial the following year. Anthony Renzi was also identified as the teen who held Eddie up after he passed out. He held him up so that his good buddy Nick Pinero could get his swings in. And according to other Abington teens who watched the beating, they didn't participate, but they watched. Some of them even cheered. Nick Pinero swung his bat like an axe. They said it looked like someone chopping wood. Seventeen-year-old Kevin Convoy was one of the first kids out of the cars, and he threw a bat at Eddie Pollock's legs as he tried to run away. Eddie ran through the parking lot at St. Cecilia's between the rectory and the church, and that little bastard threw a bat at him and tripped him. Eddie went down, and that's when they attacked him. Eddie Pollock was not a big kid. He had an enormous personality, but he only stood a little less than five and a half feet tall. His friend John Atkinson, the one who suffered a horrible beating in the parking lot of the auto body shop just minutes before Eddie's attack, called his friend Little Eddie Pollock. I think the gang saw Eddie running. They saw he was alone because his brother and another friend ran in a different direction, and that is what Eddie wanted. Protect my little brother. Get him out of here. So Eddie was by himself, and he was smaller than the other kids. Eddie Pollock's funeral was Wednesday, November 16th. It was pouring rain. One of those horrible winter rains that sting your skin. And it was an open casket. Eddie's older sister fought her dad and convinced him it should be an open casket funeral so everyone could see what these seven boys did to her brother. 4,000 people attended Eddie Pollock's funeral. I'm going to say that again. 4,000 people. Friends and family, kids from elementary schools in Fox Chase, Philadelphia police, even children and families from Abington School District. Because as bad as these kids were, dozens of kids from Abington and the surrounding areas, they were still just a handful of people. That wasn't a reflection of everyone who lived in that community. The Philadelphia press called Abington High School murder high. That's actually unfair because there were hundreds of other kids who had nothing to do with what happened to Eddie Pollock. One of the stories Father Olson told at Eddie's funeral was about a day when Eddie was helping the father take food to people who couldn't get out to the grocery store or prepare their own meals. They were housebound. He remarked how Eddie could sometimes be pretty clumsy. And as he ran down the stairs in the rectory, he dropped a basket of strawberries. The fruit rolled all over the parking lot. And Father Olson said, Eddie told him, it's okay, Father. We'll just kiss him up to God. (laughs) That's something we used to say growing up all the time. I don't know if that's an expression in Catholic households. The book in Eddie's name is filled with page after page of memories like that from people who knew Eddie. The pace of the book is so interesting because it starts out moving in moments and then days. Then it moves in weeks and months. And then when the trial starts, it moves back to that moment-by-moment, day-by-day storytelling. And you feel as if you're watching Eddie's family live through all of this. It's one of the most heartbreaking and beautifully written stories I've ever read. I thought nothing could hit me more than Deborah Spongeon's book about her daughter Nancy. But this one did. Within a day or so after Eddie's murder, stories started creeping out about 911 calls. Apparently, one of the sisters was in the rectory while Eddie was attacked. She was devastated by what she saw and terrified to try to stop it. Think about it. An older woman all alone taking on seven young men with bats. She probably would have been killed, too. So she called 911 thinking that was the right thing to do. According to Friedman and Nodal book, as well as Philadelphia Inquirer archives, there were two reporters at the Inquirer who went to the 911 dispatch facility in Philadelphia. They went to ask for these 911 tapes, knowing full well Pennsylvania doesn't release recordings. They may be used in court, but even then they won't be released to the public. As they were sitting there, they claimed someone who was pretty high up in the police department came out of the radio room leaned into them and whispered, I've heard the tapes, and they're going to blow the roof off the department. Then he said, anyone who's heard these tapes is fucking outraged. And this was the start of Eddie Pollock's death, almost getting overshadowed by a completely inept, mismanaged, and decrepit 911 system in Philadelphia. It turned out there were 14 calls to 911 on the night of Friday, November 11th, between a little after 10 p.m. and 10.40 p.m. Those two Inquirer reporters, Tommy Gibbons and Jeff Gamage, released a story a few days after Eddie Pollock's funeral about the calls to 911. In this article, they quoted anonymous sources from Philadelphia Police Department who called the conversations with the 911 operators horrific. They said these operators were belligerent, hostile, and argumentative with the callers. But no one other than officials connected to the city's 911 system actually heard the tapes until someone in the police department, who still remains anonymous, took the tapes, played them in his car, was so mortified by what he heard. He called a buddy of his, drove to his house and let him listen. And they decided to make a copy and his friend released it to the media. There are transcripts of the 911 calls in Philadelphia Inquirer archives from 1994. They're also in the book in Eddie's name. I'm not going to read them here because I struggled to get through all of them. They started with callers concerned about a mob, kids terrorizing the neighborhood, driving around with bats, harassing people. And as the next 35 to 40 minutes wore on, the callers were more frantic. There were reports of people being assaulted. I talked to my friend Margo D. from Book vs. Movie about this case, and she told me at the time when Eddie was murdered, she was living in California for school, and there were reports on the news in California about these 911 calls and about the way the operators behaved. I think the worst one of all of them was Eddie's friend Teresa, who called 911 as Eddie lay bleeding on the steps of St. Cecilia's Church. She was so upset she couldn't figure out how to say the word ambulance. She kept saying, my friend needs a hospital and the 911 operator thought she was talking about someone in a hospital, which I can understand. It's a stressful call. She's hysterical. She's crying. The operator's trying to figure out what it is that she's asking for. Eventually, they got it figured out, and the operator was so antagonistic as she asked for the location. Teresa kept saying St. Cecilia's. She didn't realize the person on the other end of the phone had no idea what or where St. Cecilia's was. To their credit, when the Pollocks learned about all this, they didn't want the 911 operators fired. They just wanted them off the phones. They understood it was an incredibly stressful job with not enough training. But the six people who handled these 14 911 calls may not have been the best people to handle crisis calls. Well, Mayor Ed Rendell—that name may be familiar to you. He eventually became one of our governors here in Pennsylvania. He did way more than just move these folks off the phones. Three of the 911 operators who took calls leading up to Eddie's attack were fired, and the other three were suspended without pay. Then the union that supported these employees went up against the city, got the operators their jobs back, although as John Pollock requested, they were not on the phone. The chief inspector and captain of the radio rooms were transferred to other positions. Ed Rendell went on the fucking Today Show with Bryant Gumbel to talk about everything he was doing to fix 911, and it turned into a circus. There were news articles that called 911 a race debate. And the reason for that was there were city officials who thought suddenly because a white child was murdered, everyone wants to fix 911. But when black children were murdered for years, nobody cared. And they weren't wrong. People didn't want to fix 911 because it was a white child who was murdered. I think what happened is Eddie's murder opened up the veil that was hiding what was happening in 911, and nobody had ever heard calls like that before. the The fact that these tapes were leaked and then published, the entire city, suburbs, all the way out in California, like my friend Margot said, everybody in this country knew what was going on with Philadelphia's 911 system. John and Kathy Pollock were contacted by lawyers who offered to represent them in a suit against the city of Philadelphia. That's not at all what the Pollock family wanted. John Pollock said, We're not suing anybody. We will not profit from this tragedy. And that started John Pollock's journey to single handedly push the city of Philadelphia, the city commissioners, the mayor to make improvements within the 911 system. This man became an expert in the inner workings of 911. There were cities all over the country that had mobile data terminals and police cars, that had more training, that had better emotional support for 911 operators and dispatchers. And the city said, well, we don't have money for all that. The mayor said no one was dispatched to Fox Chase because we don't have enough money for enough cops. And that was bullshit. So here's what happened. At the time, 911 operators would take calls, and then the information got funneled to a dispatcher who could have been handling dozens of neighborhoods and precincts. And the operators, they weren't local. They didn't realize all these calls were coming from within two blocks of each other. They weren't trained to know that. They got three weeks of training. So there was no one who could have realized all those calls were connected. Most of these calls were given low priority. Some of them were even categorized as noise disturbances. Back in the winter of 94 and 95, you couldn't pick up a paper or turn on the news Without someone saying, Eddie Pollock died because of 911. And every time that happened, John Pollock said, 911 operators didn't kill my son. Seven teenagers from Abington with bats killed my son. This family is amazing because those 911 calls kill me. If anyone would have sent the police to Fox Chase, even near that McDonald's or St. Cecilia's, they would have seen carloads of kids driving around with bats. And these kids weren't in the best state of mind. They admitted they'd been drinking. They admitted they'd gotten high. They said, and this is almost verbatim, they smoked a bunch of fatties. The kids who were arrested for Eddie's attack had also been trying to score PCP. They just couldn't get their hands on any. I get what Mr. Pollock meant when he said 911 operators didn't kill his son. They didn't, but they also didn't do anything to prevent his death. The day of the preliminary hearing was a little less than a month after Eddie's murder. The assistant district attorney, John Casey, went for first-degree murder. He felt these kids planned their intentions. Maybe Eddie Pollock wasn't their identified target before they got in their cars, but Fox Chase kids were. And at least one of the defendants, Boo Kadavong, told people he was psyched to kill someone. Judge Simmons agreed, and he denied bail for all seven defendants. He ordered them to be held in prison until trial on charges of first-degree murder. As the ADA expected, the defendants appealed the ruling for no bail, and also as expected, a new judge overturned the original order. All defendants except Tom Crook, the one who went into the police station and admitted what he'd done, were awarded bail. And of those six, five were able to post 10% bond and were out of jail until the trial. Now, let me tell you something. Depending on which defendant we're talking about, bail was set at anywhere between $1 million and $450,000. So 10% is not a small amount of money. We're talking about $45,000 to $100,000 25 years ago. Not long after the preliminary hearing, one of the defendants made a deal with the prosecution, Kevin Convoy. That was the kid who threw the bat at Eddie's legs and tripped him told the DA everything about everyone's actions that night. He admitted to his specific role in Eddie's attack. He agreed to testify as a witness for the prosecution and in exchange was convicted of third-degree manslaughter and sentenced to five years in prison. The other six defendants were tried together, so the courtroom had John Casey on one side for the prosecution and six attorneys on the other side for the defense, People compared it to the O.J. Simpson trial with the Dream Team because there were so many people sitting around O.J. It looked pretty much the same with so many attorneys sitting around all these kids. Nick Pinero's attorney was a very famous Philly defense lawyer named Angelo Chuck Peruto. Any local listeners, well, I know you immediately recognize that name. Chuck defended, often successfully I might add, mobsters, crooked judges, one judge in particular was now a defense attorney for one of the other boys who murdered Eddie Pollock. As bad as the defense circus was, no one was more the master of ceremony than Chuck Peruto. He blamed the Fox Chase kids. He said they went out that night specifically looking for a rumble. He attacked John Atkinson when he was on the stand. That's Eddie's friend who was beaten severely just moments before Eddie Pollock. He disparaged Eddie Pollock's character. The court transcripts are horrible. What John and Kathy and Billy and Christy and every one of Eddie's friends who showed up at court every day, every one of John and Kathy's friends who showed up at court every day, had to listen to was horrific. The level of poise and grace that the Pollock family demonstrated during every single step of this experience, losing their son, being forced into the media, a place that nobody ever wants to be in, a place that they had no idea how to navigate. They were so deeply rooted in their community. Kathy was a crossing guard. This family is incredible. Their strength, everything they endured, especially the trial and despicable Chuck Peruto. It's just mind-blowing. Before the trial, the other defense attorneys wanted to get the case moved to the suburbs. They didn't think these kids would be able to get a fair trial in Philadelphia, and Chuck Peruto said absolutely not. He told his fellow attorneys, a suburban jury will convict these kids of first-degree murder. A Philly jury, who's probably lived through 911 fiascos themselves, will see these kids more like kids being kids. Things got out of hand. He believed a Philly jury wouldn't send those boys to prison for the rest of their lives. And he was right. In February 1996, Nicholas Pinero, Thomas Crook, and Anthony Renzi were convicted of third degree murder. Nick and Thomas were the ones who repeatedly hit Eddie in the side of the head with bats. Anthony was the kid who took the very first swing. And then held Eddie Pollock up by his shoulders so Nick and Thomas could get in a few more swings of their own. Dewan Alexander was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. He repeatedly kicked Eddie Pollock while he was down on the ground, unconscious, with his steel toed boots. Carlo Johnson and Boo Cadavang were only convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. They were the organizers of this rampage and fox chase. Boo was also the one who wanted to rent a U-Haul to bring more kids from Abington into the fight. These young men were also charged with assault in the attack on John Atkinson. And somehow, the jury found all of them not guilty of those charges. Before sentencing, there were victim impact statements. Eddie's family, his friends, everyone spoke. His father's statement was the most brutal to read. He told the defendants he didn't want to hear their apologies. And then he said, and I'm going to read this directly from his statement. I will be there every time somebody has to decide whether you come up for work release, when you come up for furloughs, when you come up for parole. I will be there to remind every decision maker of what you did to Ed, how you beat him over and over again with those bets. I will spend the rest of my life making sure society is protected from you killing again. And when I die... I'm going to be the first spirit you run into in the next world. And I will be there to make sure that in the next life, when you are judged for your actions here, it is with real punishment. Because the Lord can seek revenge. And I want to be there when he does for what you did to Ed, what you did to this courtroom, and what you did to my family. I will never forget for all eternity how you slaughtered Eddie Pollock. And then fucking Chuck Peruto jumped up and screamed. The other defense attorney started arguing. I wish to God somebody could have just told them to sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. Their clients were convicted. Sentencing was about to happen. There's nothing they could do. For God's sake, let this man and his family have their say. And I want to mention Tom Crook. It didn't seem to me from any of my research that really any of the defendants, except for Tom, had any remorse whatsoever. Thomas Crook is the kid who voluntarily went to Philadelphia Police with his mom. He admitted what he did. He told them who else was involved. Tom had a statement he wanted to read before sentencing. He told the court that he planned to apologize to the Pollock family, but out of respect for Mr. Pollock's wishes, he wouldn't. He apologized to the court and to his own family. He sobbed through his statement, telling his mom how sorry he was. He was sorry to his brothers and sisters. He was sorry for messing up so badly that he can't be there for them because he's in jail. He said he hoped his actions would teach future generations how not to behave, and that his punishment would help people see what was right and what was wrong. Nick Pinero, Thomas Crook, and Anthony Renzi were sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison for third-degree murder. That's the maximum sentence the judge could apply. Dwan Alexander received eight to 20 years for voluntary manslaughter. Boo Katavong and Carlo Johnson received five to 10 years for conspiracy. As for the 911 improvements, John Pollock spent over a year in city council meetings, meetings with Mayor Rendell, with police commissioners, with other communities to see how they make 911 work. He even went out and bought devices that he used, a cell phone, a laptop, he created an MDT unit that could be economically built and installed in police vehicles to show the city, even though they kept saying they didn't have money, they could afford to do it. But by September 1996, nothing changed. And the Pollocks were pretty damn fed up. They were tired of hearing about analysis and financial models, lack of funding, more evaluations, more pilots. There was supposed to have been a pilot program to install MDTs in all police cars, but it stalled that September. So the Pollocks played hardball. They threatened to sue the city if Philadelphia didn't make changes. Now, they had no intention of suing the city, but that was the only thing that got the city to move its ass, that got the mayor to move his ass. And by February 1997, the city installed 25 MDT units a month in police vehicles. In September 1998, Philadelphia unveiled a new 911 emergency communication center. More training, better training, better communication systems, better technology. It was an $11 million investment. And all of it was because of John and Kathy Pollack. Nobody can tell me any different. What they did was an enormous benefit to the entire city, everyone in every district, black, white. It was incredible. Over 450 police cars had MDT systems by the time the city held the dedication for the new 911 center. And the two people missing from that event were John and Kathy Pollock because they weren't fucking invited. Nick Panero and Anthony Renzi were released from prison in late 2010. Thomas Crook was released in January 2011. All three of them were sentenced to 15 years probation after their release. Conditions of their probation are they cannot live in Fox Chase. They cannot visit Fox Chase, and they cannot be in possession of or consume alcohol. Their probation lasts until about 2025. Every five or 10 years or so, there are features in Philadelphia papers about Eddie Pollock's death, marking anniversaries, which suck. What kind of an anniversary is that? There is one really beautiful milestone, though, and that's Eddie's graduation from Cardinal Doherty High School, which may sound a little odd because he was murdered more than six months before graduation. But the school had a chair for Eddie and a diploma, <laughs> and they read his name along with all the other graduates. There was a full two-minute standing ovation from his classmates. His parents and his siblings watched from a booth high in the auditorium so they wouldn't distract or take away from everyone's celebration. Eddie Pollock was a frequent request from local listeners. And I got to say, the last two months of research wasn't easy. Besides police reports and transcripts, the research in the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News Archives, the book in Eddie's name was just so difficult to get through. It took me weeks. I was talking to Margot again about this case, and she knows I am a voracious reader. I devour a book in a day or two, depending on how big it is. And this was a beautifully written book, but it is absolutely heartbreaking. If you're interested in reading in Eddie's name, you can get it through Amazon. It's not available on Amazon Prime. It'll take a few weeks. My copy was fulfilled by a college bookstore. But it was a beautiful story, and I am really grateful to the Pollock family and the level of vulnerability they shared with the authors. They opened up their lives and their hearts. They gave so much of themselves so that so many of us could get to know them and get to know their beautiful boy, Eddie Pollock, I want to thank all of you for listening to this, and for bearing with me, as you heard a number of times, this was not an easy story to get through. And I know I might be a little different than other podcasters when they talk about true crime tales. It doesn't mean any one of us are better or worse than one another. It's just hard for me to hold back the heartbreak. I remember this story so vividly from when it happened 25 years ago, but through my research to bring you this episode, I learned so much more. I think anyone who gets even a glimmer into the Pollock family, their children Christy, Billy, and of course Eddie, are blessed to know about this wonderful family. And I wish more than anything, it was for a reason other than the murder of their son. I'd like to thank Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and you can download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.